Okay, it looks like everybody's in. Uh, thank you all for joining. Just to uh, reconfirm, this is Empowering Attorneys of Color through Shriver's Racial Justice Institute. Today, we're going to be hosted by or presented by Mario Paredes. Uh, Mario currently serves as a staff attorney and a Bart Gordon Fellow with the Massachusetts Law Reform Institute and the Prisoners Legal Services, uh, working on the Immigration Detention Conditions Project. Uh, before pursuing his career in legal ag advocacy, Mario spent several years working with various community-based organizations, schools, and nonprofits. He's a member of the American Immigration Lawyers Association, Massachusetts Bar, Boston Bar, and sits on the board of the local immigrants' uh, rights nonprofit, Central Presente. He's a graduate of Boston University School of Law, Harvard University Graduate School of Education, and Lehigh University. We also have Latoya Whiteside um, with us today. Unfortunately, Latoya is a little bit under the weather. Uh, she's going to be monitoring the chat and hold on, a couple folks coming in. <laughs> and we'll, we'll answer any questions that come up during the presentation. Uh, Latoya joined PLS as a staff attorney in October of 2018. Since joining PLS, her work is focused on forging connections in communities of color and improving the conditions of black and brown prisoners. She's a 2020 graduate of the Shriver Center on Poverty Law's Racial Justice Institute and an MLAC 2021 Racial Justice Fellow. She's forging a path for race equity work at PLS as the project director of PLS's Racial Equity and Corrections Initiative. More recently, her work resulted in PLS being awarded a $250,000 grant from RISE Massachusetts Foundation to ensure that black and brown prisoners receive equitable access to medication-assisted treatment. She serves on the legislature's Structural Racism Committee and was recently appointed by the Attorney General to serve on the Opioid Recovery and Remediation Fund Advisory Council. She's a graduate, graduate of Spelman College and Rutgers School of Law. And with that, Mario, take it away. Great, thank you so much, Toby. And let me just get my screen going up here for everyone, one second here. Okay, great, can you see the screen, Toby? Yes. Okay, great, thank you. So uh, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you. I see that there's tons of people, uh, you know, joining us today. So for those who just joined in the last few seconds, again, uh, this, you know, this panel today, uh, you know, it's myself and Latoya Whiteside as well, who, as Toby mentioned, is a little bit sick today. Um, and so she's going to be monitoring the chat and also feeling free to chime in in, in spaces in which she can. Uh, also, I know we have a few colleagues that I work with on the line here, including the, our director, Liz Mato. So when there's opportunity to chime in as well, you know, I invite you to, to also jump in. Otherwise, let me just, you know, get started. I had jotted down a few notes from, you know, the last session. Hopefully you all attended, you know, with Kimberly Jones as the keynote speaker. And, you know, I wanted to open up with some of that beforehand. Uh, we have, uh, you know, a lot of time here today. So I'm hoping that by the end, we could open it up for more discussion and questions, uh, you know, and hear from you all if there's also things you're all incorporating in your organizations. As Toby mentioned, I get the you know, pleasure of working with two organizations right now. And so I'll, I'll go into a little bit of uh, why that's the case and, and how that's been working out and also kind of what I've learned through that space also. Um, but wanted to just circle back on some things that Kimberly Jones said, because I think it's important to and connected to what I'm going to be speaking about as well and what you know, we had prepared alongside with, with Latoya in, in our work. Um, so I think the first thing that really stuck out to me, you know, with, uh, you know, what was mentioned was just the urgency of, you know, what Kimberly was saying. Um, you know, I think a lot of, for me, 
there's so much work to do for all of us and myself included. You know, I'm not an expert when it comes to race equity related issues. I'm also constantly learning around, you know, all the, uh, all the different intersections around doing this type of work and being equitable across different communities. And so, you know, but one thing that I think we can all have, even if we're starting from like a, a baseline of learning is, is the urgency, you know, um, and, and kind of moving from, you know, just, uh, you know, small reforms to more radical and power shifting changes, you know, in ourselves and our organizations and the work we do in our community. And so, you know, I think that's somewhere that we can, we can all start from. Um, I think that's extremely important um, because as even I think was mentioned earlier on, and I think Kimberly alluded to this is that, you know, a lot of the, the changes that we're advocating for now, a lot of what we're fighting against nowadays, if you look back decades ago, they were the reforms of yesterday, you know, many times, many times the, the very reforms that were being put in place, you know, decades ago, because they didn't reach far enough. Now we're left kind of picking up the pieces, trying to reform the reforms. And so I just want to invite everyone to really, you know, think a little bit more radically in terms of the work you do um, and, and trying to, act, you know, demand more and push for more in everything we do. Uh, the other piece that was interesting to me was this, you know, a monopoly, um, you know, game that that Kim, you know Kimberly had brought up. Um, to me, it was super interesting because, you know, to me, I think of law as a tool, and as was mentioned, law has also done harm. You know, law can be harmful. It's not. It's a tool that can be used for good. It's a tool that can be used for bad. And so, uh, you know, this this kind of monopoly analogy was kind of a good example of showing how you know, over decades and centuries, uh, you know, policies and laws have been put in place and practices that have been used against and weaponized against communities of color and other marginalized communities. And so, you know, we, again, need to think about, although we are in this space and we chose to practice law, you know, I think we need to put it in the context of the harm that it's also caused folks and, and how to, uh, you know, reverse some of that and, and, and also, you know, uh, like I said, demand more. Uh, also, the, the third piece that stuck out to me was this idea around, you know, Kimberly mentioned the idea of being in a, an abusive relationship and how, you know, communities of colors and others have the right to feel fear when they think about, you know, laws and policies. And so, again, I think we just want to keep that in mind in, in all the work we do. And finally, I'll just say that, um, you know, Kimberly also mentioned the point of how important it is to you know, do trainings, to work in groups, to continue doing learning. And so, again, I just, I think this is an opportunity to do that. And what we're going to be talking about today is really how to start incorporating through programs like the Racial Justice Institute and, and others that are out there, how to start putting a lot of what we're learning, you know, into action as well. And so um, we, you know, titled this Empowering Attorneys of Color through Shriver's Racial Justice Institute. There's obviously also a lot of work to be done for other allies as well. I think we centered, you know, in this case, attorneys of color, because, you know, in this case, through the RJI process that Latoya and I had participated in, it, were, it was to, you know, staff of color who were, uh, you know, fairly newer to the organizations we were representing uh, to kind of go into that space. And, and I think it's extremely important to be able to, you know, center, you know, our experiences and that of others as well. And so that's why we focus on that. And I just want to read one quote, you know, quickly that I saw yesterday that I think stuck out to me um, along these lines. It was, I dream of never being called resilient again in my life. I'm exhausted by my strength. I want support, 
I want softness. I want relief. I want to be amongst kin, not patted on the back for how well I can take a hit. Um, and that's from an activist, uh, uh, Sandashe Brown. And I think, I, you know, I mentioned that just to open it up because, you know, a lot of the work, the presentations we're doing, you know, today here, you'll see it's a lot of stuff that, you know, uh, communities of color have kind of taken on a lot of the weight of carrying. And so again, going back to that idea of urgency, you know, again, I invite everyone here, uh, even though if you did not grow up in a community that was marginalized in one way or another to, to really, um, you know, uh, step into that and lean into that. So I'll transition to kind of just what we're gonna talk about, you know, during the time we have here today. So partly is who are we? Um, you know, who is Shriver? What is this RJI Racial Justice Institute that, you know, is mentioned as part of the presentation? What was our purpose behind applying to RJI? Um, you know, what's the, the kind of project that we took on through engaging in that Racial Justice Institute and that we're still in the process of, you know, trying to carry out some of the challenges that, you know, have come up in that process and kind of suggestions for others who are considering already starting the process of, uh, you know, shifting, uh, you know, the way in which their organizations do this type of work. And so, again, hopefully by the end of all that, uh, there's, you know, questions, there's uh, also other suggestions that all of you may have, but we want to at least walk you through that process. This is not, like I said, RJI is one of uh, many, you know, institutes out there and training programs. And so, you know, we're kind of, kind of walk through this as as if it's a case study that's that's actually in the process of happening right now. Um, so who are we? And like I said, um, I'm going to be doing, you know, a lot of the speaking today because Latoya is sick. Uh, but, you know, feel free if you have questions specifically for Latoya, uh, because she's been a huge part of this process to, you know, include them in the, in the chat as well. Uh, so I'll speak on behalf of myself. Uh, and again, Latoya, feel free if you do feel uh, like you want to jump in. But uh, just to introduce myself and my identity, I think that's just important to start with. Uh, you know, I am a uh, Latinx male of color, uh, born and raised in, in Long Island, New York, to immigrant parents from Guatemala, who, you know, when they came here were undocumented. And so, you know, a lot of that, you know, the personal side of my story is, uh, is kind of what initially got me into doing some of this work that I'll mention, but also a lot of the, the work I've been trying to do, you know, in community over the last several years as well. Um, you know, I'm a cisgender, heterosexual, heterosexual male of color, but, you know, I think that's something just, again, keep in mind because I'm not an expert. There's gonna be things that I'm gonna be leaving out in this presentation, um, you know, and in the discussion today. And so that's why it's always important to, to continue bringing more people with lived experiences, um, you know, into these spaces. Um, I'm also a younger and older brother. So, you know, constantly, learning from others and trying to serve in mentorship roles as well. Uh, I'm a staff attorney, as Toby mentioned, working for two organizations, one of those being Prisoners Legal Services and the other being Massachusetts Law Reform Institute. And between those two organizations, uh, you know, we launched a project through the Bart Gordon Fellowship through MLEC uh, two years ago now called the Immigrant Detention Conditions Project. And basically it's been focused on uh, you know, shedding light on what's happening in ICE detention here in Massachusetts and, and in New England, because typically we tend to think of ICE detention more along the southern border, although we do have, you know, a lot of the same harms that happen here. So shedding light on that 
you know, uh, connecting with community, community and advocates to, you know, change policies uh, and ultimately, you know, uh, with the ultimate goal of getting folks out of detention. Um, and so um, that's through a, a variety of means, you know, through what you think of traditional legal advocacy, whether it's through, um, you know, making administrative complaints, through litigation, through uh, working with policymakers, uh, but also through organizing, you know, connecting with community, uh, connecting with advocates, and really uh, brainstorming with them behind the scenes. Um, so that's a little bit of the, the project. And, and then lastly, I'll say about myself, my approach to the law has very much before one, you know, before I entered law school, as Toby mentioned, I had, you know, worked for a series of community organizations and, and schools and nonprofits. And, and so when I went to law school, I went in with the idea of how do I combine, you know, community organizing with policymaking, uh, with more traditional legal advocacy. And so that's kind of how I approach the law with those different lenses uh, and, and something I'm constantly, you know, trying to work on as well. Um, Latoya, I don't know if, did you want to say anything about yourself as well? No, I'll let you keep going. All right, thank you. Um, so I'll, I'll kind of just shift to, you know, the, the Shriver Center. Um, so I'm sure many of you have heard of the Shriver Center. They've been around for a while. They've been doing a lot of, you know, great work nationally and also connecting, you know, more locally with, with organizations. So I am not a spokesperson for them. I don't work for them, but I will kind of give you a little bit of background just so you have some context to where RJI came from and, and kind of the work that we're doing through that. So Shriver, you know, they work both on advocating for laws directly on their own behalf for different policies, uh, but also a large part of the work they do is connecting folks, um, training, you know, attorneys, paralegals, other advocates, uh, coordinating work, you know, nationally, uh, and, and supporting networks of, of attorneys across the country who are doing, you know, working on, on issues related to the intersection of poverty law and race law and, and other areas as well. And so, you know, that's kind of, uh, where RJI, the Racial Justice Institute, fits into all of this. It's part of that training, coordination, having a network of folks. Um, and, and so in simple, you know, in simple terms, what is RJI, the Racial Justice Institute? It's, you know, simply it's a national leadership and race equity training program. But, you know, in actuality, it's, it's meant to be a lot more than just that. You know, it's meant to be about building our individual capacity, whether it's as attorneys of color, whether it's as white attorneys, whether it's, uh, you know, attorneys who carry other privileges uh, in, in these spaces, but it's meant to build individual capacity, uh, you know, first and foremost, because that's the baseline of, you know, all the work that we're going to be doing in communities, making sure that we're not causing more harm in those spaces. So we have to train ourselves, learn about these things constantly, learn about the history of, of laws, about, you know, injustices, about disparities. And so a large piece of RJI is doing that, that capacity building. Uh, it's about building community, uh, about building power amongst the different advocates in these spaces. Uh, it's about also continuing to feel urgency around these issues and putting resources behind that. Uh, it's about un unlearning harms. You know, like I said, we don't want to be reproducing harm uh, in this space because we are you know, many times the, the first line of defense with, you know, communities, uh, in addition to obviously the community-based organizations that are really on the ground. And so we don't want to be recreating harm. Uh, we, it's also about having difficult conversations on how to do that. 
Um, you know, when we have conversations about race, it can be extremely difficult. You know, there's traumas there that communities of color have faced, including, you know, staff, including ourselves. And so it's hard to have those conversations. And, and also for allies who are trying to do this work, it's, it's difficult. And so, um, and then another piece is organizing, like I said, but um, let me actually just transition to kind of what some of the, the actual RJI goals. Um, this is, you know, straight from uh, RJI and the Shriver Center. And so, you know, I wanted to kind of highlight the way they frame it as well. Um, the first piece is increasing the, the competency and capacity of race equity advocates. Again, I'm, I'm gonna just uh, keep mentioning this along, you know, along the presentation because it's important that everyone is doing the work, you know, internally. It can't just be, you know, uh, communities that have historically been marginalized or oppressed. It has to be everyone who's, and that takes a lot. It takes a lot of energy, you know, to be doing the learning, but it's extremely important because everything that you do after that is going to depend on, you know, where, uh, you know, what, what work you've done internally to, to understand these issues, where they come from and how to address them, you know, in a way that aligns with what community needs and wants. Um, supporting, the second goal is supporting uh, race equity organizational alignment. You know, obviously with everything that's happened these past few years, organizations um, are seeking, you know, how they can better align their organizations with larger movements that are happening across the country. And so, you know, the RJI is meant to, uh, you know, play a role, an important role in that is how do you do that? You know, how do you actually start getting to that place? You know, and, and, and so it's a lot of stuff that, for example, we're not going to have the time in, in today's presentation or even in the three days that we have today to, to kind of tackle it all. And, and RJI tries to kind of get a little bit more at that granular level, level of, you know, how can you work to accomplish this? What are steps? Um, you know, how do you dive into this work? And so it's, it's uh, serving as that support. Uh, third is promoting the use of explicit race conscious affirmative advocacy with, with the community lawyering approach. And so, you know, I know community lawyering now, you know, that term has come up a few times just this morning alone. Um, you know, movement lawyering, community lawyering, it comes up in different spaces. And so, you know, I'll talk about it, you know, a little bit afterwards as well. But it's something that's important to be extremely race conscious in everything that we're doing, uh, making sure that, you know, although we're bogged down in our day to day work, you know, as attorneys, whether it's through filing cases, you know, uh, whether it's through doing administrative advocacy, that's it's always important to have your ear on the ground with community and work with them. And um, so it, RJI is meant to kind of give some tools of how to start that, uh, you know, fourth serve as a national resource center for race equity equity advocates. Um, and this is extremely important. I mean, I know, you know, there's a listserv that, you know, we kind of have through RJI where we're able to connect, talk about the issues that come up in our organizations or in our communities, how to approach them, like I said, in a way that's not causing more harm. Um, and, and that can be difficult, you know, how to, how to uh, change our organizations, how to change our approach to practicing law. Um, like I said, it's all very kind of theoretical up here and having, you know, a group of different advocates who have been trained, um, you know, around these issues to, to bounce ideas off of is, you know, important. Um, all of also to develop just kind of a group of advocates who are, you know, faculty and mentors. Um, so through the RGI program that, you know, we participated in for several months, 
you know, we received, uh, you know, mentorship through that, both formally uh, as part of the actual program and also informally just through the connections that you make in these spaces. And so a lot of those folks are now who we lean on when, you know, we have ideas or we're, when we want to, you know, implement new, new things, uh, you know, in the space that we're working in. And, uh, and then finally, just building uh, state and regional, you know, and national networks. So again, just all part of uh, community building. Let me move on here to uh, what are some of the, the core practices or themes or things of that nature that, you know, we talk about through RJI, um, you know, obviously not going to have a chance to dive into what these mean, uh, you know, in, into what uh, type of training we received, but it just to give you an idea for those who may be interested in participating in programs like this in the future of, of topics that we talk about is, you know, structural racialization, how, you know, uh, race and the power, you know, and the ways in which, uh, you know, powers have been used against, you know, different communities formed over time and what role they play today, you know, social cognition, implicit biases, which I know are, you know, are terms that, that we've used often in, in our work, uh, thinking in, in terms of systems, you know, uh, how they overlap. So, you know, I think we meant, we all work in different spaces, right? Whether it's through doing immigration, prison work, whether it's working, um, you know, in housing issues. And, uh, you know, there's layers to each of those spaces of how, you know, uh, you know, how the, the oppression we see today came to, you know, come about in the first place. And so thinking strategically across systems, within systems of how to, uh, you know, implement change. Community lawyering that I mentioned is obviously another important piece. And that's something that through RGI, you know, we were connecting both with attorneys who are, you know, implementing this in this organization, but also organizers, you know, organizers who are either on the ground doing this work or also working in collaboration with attorneys or firms or nonprofits or some organizations that are even starting to, you know, incorporate organizers, uh, you know, into their actual organizations, working with, you know, very directly with, uh, with attorneys. Uh, multi-form advocacy. Um, so like I said, law, although is the focus of, you know, this uh, presentation and, and these next three days, um, you know, advocacy needs to take on multiple forms as, you know, we know. And so, uh, you know, part of RJI is thinking beyond just the law. What are other tools out there that are available that either we should directly be learning and incorporating into our practice or finding the right partners to do that with? Uh, framing and communication, uh, you know, around building urgency when it comes to doing this work, you know, is another piece. And then, you know, another huge piece that, you know, we'll talk about a little bit more later on as well is leadership and organizational alignment. So how, you know, it's, it's one thing to have the ideas, to have the sense of wanting to create change. Uh, but, you know, what does that mean, uh, you know, at the you know, at the level of each of our organizations, do we have buy-in from leadership? You know, is leadership being trained in these areas as well? Um, you know, and how are we aligning the mission of the organization? How are we aligning our funding? How are we aligning the programs, the projects we take on, the, you know, the, the hiring, all of that uh, with, with what we're, you know, uh, trying to do. So those are some of the, uh, you know, kind of general themes that we talk about. Uh, let me see, I just want to see how we're on time. With 
uh, different topics or this is the kind of the, the theory and method. Uh, I'll go pretty briefly through this, but yeah, you know, through RGI, like I said, it's a series of uh, month long trainings and seminars and putting things into practice and testing things out and reflecting on, on what we've learned. But the basic structure that it takes throughout these several months is doing our independent learning and reading and engaging. Um, also interactive presentations, like I said, through whether it's through organizers who are in these spaces, uh, attorneys, other advocates. Um, also starting to use the actual space and the time in RJI to apply you know, what we're learning in the small group sessions that we have. Um, and then the ultimate goal is that, you know, when you apply to RJI, at least with this specific program, right? There's other programs out there as well, but when you apply with RJI, you're applying as a race equity team. And so I know there's probably some of you out there who either, either have participated in RJI or are currently participating. Uh, you know, our, uh, you know, when we participated last year, uh, Community Legal Aid in Massachusetts was also involved. And I know this year, Mass Law Reform Institute uh, also has a team that's that's you know involved with RJI, and then you know our year was you know through through Prisoners Legal Services, and so the idea was take everything we're learning, have an equity team that's participating in these trainings, and then ultimately bring it back to you know uh, our organizations and the spaces that we're in. Um, the next is reporting and reflections, so it's just a, something that's incorporated throughout the RJI trainings. And then finally, um, you know, additional learning, application, reflection. And this is just a, a constant cycle because, um, you know, although this, the, the theme of today is successes, and I know tomorrow we're talking about challenges, but although we're talking about successes, this is still a work in progress. This is something that we're, in our equity team, we're still working on. Uh, you know, even equity teams that we heard from through RJI that, you know, participating in RJI years ago are still implementing, you know, different phases or aspects of the work they wanted to incorporate. So, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a lot of work and there's constantly, you know, learning and testing things out and, and, and trying to build more partnerships and allies and organizations to do that work. Um, so let me move on here. So the components very briefly of the equity team project is again, this is just adapted from RJI itself, is addressing racial disparities or disproportionate impact on communities of color, uh, applying the concepts, the tools, the skills that we, you know, learned in that space back in our, you know, our programs, and to, you know, have explicit race equity strategies and advocacy. And so, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, I think for, for me, this next slide is kind of the, the, what sums all of this up, which is that, you know, it's meant, these projects are meant to move us from, you know, just theory and learning to actual, you know, intentional local action that involves community that's, um, that's directed towards community that's not harming community. And so, um, you know, that's ultimately what RGI is meant to do. Um, and it's just one piece like of, of uh, a lot larger, you know, movement that's happening you know across um you know across the the world so let me move on from that um and talk about just the purpose of applying to rji so i'll speak a little bit more here personally about myself because uh, i don't want to speak for you know latoya or for others who have participated in rji but i'll speak a little bit about what drew me to rji um why you know i applied and i think 
some of the general themes that come up of why people apply to RGI, you know, uh, in, in, you know, with their work. Um, so interestingly, I learned about RGI originally through the MLAC DI conference a few years ago. And so that was the, the first time I had heard of it. Uh, at the time, I was not yet working with Prisoners Legal Services. I was only working with Mass Law Reform Institute at the time. But I knew I had that in the back of my mind of wanting to, you know, apply uh, down the road. And, and fortunately, when, you know, when we kind of created this joint project between PLS and MLRI, uh, Latoya and another previous colleague had already been in the process of looking into RJI, applying, thinking about, you know, potential project to put together. And so, you know, once I kind of entered that space, I was able to plug into some of that and, and apply you know, with, with Latoya and as part of our team through, through PLS. And so that's kind of, you know, how that happened. Uh, I planned on applying, you know, regardless of where I was working. Um, but like I said, coincidentally, it just, it worked out that way. So uh, my intent specifically on why I applied to RJI, it, it really, you know, grew out of frustration with the way in which uh, I feel the law is approached even in, in law school, you know, and, and obviously in, in the work that we do post law school. And so, and then also wanted to do something about it, wanting to myself move from, you know, for many years, uh, you know, kind of sitting in a silo, learning about these things to how do I actually apply in the space that I'm actually choosing to invest time and energy into this specific career track. And you know, these specific organizations. So how do I bring that back and, and start to implement some of that change? So that's where it grew from. Um, but, you know, and a lot of those frustrations grew from challenges that come up in the legal space and even the, the nonprofit legal space and legal services. And so, you know, that's what I want to talk, want to talk about in, you know, these next few minutes um, is kind of the general challenges that, you know, I and others see in legal services. I, I borrowed a lot of this from the Movement Law Lab, which maybe many of you participated in some of their trainings that they do nationally as well. Uh, they're also a group of you know movement lawyer lawyers who uh, come from different backgrounds. Some you know in in the litigation space, some in more the legal service space, um, who are thinking about how do we become better lawyers who are listening to community and building power in that sense and shifting power and so. These are some of the general challenges, and I'm going to go through them because I think they're all kind of extremely important. Um, one is limited training on social movements. You know, as in law school, I could tell you, you know, there was no kind of mandatory classes, and I'm sure you all know, having to do with social movements, how they come about, what role law played in that, uh, both the, the good side of things and the harm it caused. And so, you know, I, I took... And just because it was an elective, you know, I took one critical race theory type class in law school, but ultimately it was mostly self-selective, you know, folks who were already interested in doing that type of work about thinking about race critically and the role it plays in the law. And, and most of, you know, I could say that probably most law students walk through, you know, their whole three years of law school without ever taking a course like that or without ever really diving into those issues. And if it didn't happen in law school, as we know through conversations right now nationally around critical race theory, and, and Kimberly, you know, mentioned this earlier, it's not happening in elementary school, middle school, high school, college for the most part. Um, and so, you know, it's a disservice to the work we do that 
we spend so much time learning about litigation, which is you know important about traditional legal advocacy, yet we don't spend ample time talking about social movements. Um, so I think that's one general challenge. Another is we try to kind of you know, shoehorn these complex issues into neat claims about due process, equal protection, and other claims, which in some spaces may be, you know, an approach that we should be taking, but in other spaces, that's not necessarily the only or sometimes the, the step we should be taking or that community wants. You know, for example, even when, when we think about equal protection, Sometimes what we're, you know, what communities of color and other, you know, oppressed communities are looking for is not to be treated in the same way that, you know, the white community is facing because white, as we all know, also white community is facing issues as well. It's not that everyone is doing is well off. It's not that, you know, everyone is getting a great education. And so sometimes equal, you know, status is not the ultimate goal. The goal is, you know, liberation, freedom, and, and, you know, having uh, ultimately everyone having, you know, opportunity for, for uh, you know, thriving and success. And so, you know, that's another general issue that comes up. Another is we're trained to issue spot. That's kind of like the, the goal, your one L year of law school issue spotting. And that's what we take away from law school and not thinking about really these larger, you know, freedom dreams that, that people have. Um, we treat symptoms often instead of root causes. I think to me, this is personally one that stands out that's very hard to change. You know, we, a lot of us, and even I find myself doing this a lot is treating just symptoms, you know, is not really thinking about, okay, you know, for example, I'll, I'll just speak on, on my behalf, speaking, you know, with folks who are in ICE detention, right? We're trying to patch up all the issues they deal with on a constant basis, you know, whether it's, uh, lack of access to, you know, to interpreters, you know, in ICE detention, or, you know, that they're not receiving the, uh, you know, proper mental health services. And so, you know, ultimately, when we try to work against that, often we find ourselves stuck in just treating symptoms, and we're never really, really getting to the root of the problem, which is why people end up in detention in the first place, why we, we rely so heavily on detention, incarceration, and criminalization of communities. And so that's another kind of you know, challenge that I see often. Uh, we're trained to be problem managers. So we move people through oppressive systems um, often. And so a lot of our time, unfortunately, is sometimes figuring out how can we you know, more smoothly get people through the, you know, for example, the criminal legal system through incarceration. How can we more uh, smoothly get them through you know, the, the court system uh, where, like I said, ultimately, uh, you know, that shouldn't be the ultimate goal. And so, you know, we need to at least be thinking about that. Uh, a small number of legal institutions, there's a small number of legal institutions, both at the state, national, you know, international level that kind of anchor and monopolize a lot of the work. And, and you know, often those are litigation shops. And so, again, that's something that to me is important to think about, you know, because even, you know, when I was working in the community space, I saw this often where, you know, attorneys or organizations would kind of step in and they would suck all the air out of the room without them intentionally doing that, right? They were coming in to, to do something, uh, you know, with the right intentions, but at the end of the day, because they monopolize a lot of the resources, um, because they monopolize the, you know, connections at the state house or whatever it may be, that they're not giving you know, a community, the, the focus, you know, then they're not allowing them to 
uh, to kind of, you know, direct the, the, you know, the work that they're trying to do. And so, so we see that a lot. Also, uh, you know, real movement learning often happens in the spaces and hours, you know, that are after the nine to five workspace. And that's something that's just not sustainable. I think um, for me, that's important right now for organizations to realize is that, you know, this can't be something that just a few staff members do on their off time on weekends, you know, at nighttime where we're strategizing, thinking, putting things together, doing trainings. That's not going to be sustainable for those who are doing it. It's not going to ultimately, uh, you know, get us to where we need to be. And so thinking about how do we make this as part of our practice, again, through our funding, through the decision making, you know, uh, processes we have, et cetera. Uh, failure to collaborate with community-based movements. Um, and sorry, I'm just checking constantly time here. Um, failure to collaborate with community-based movements is another you know, important challenge that I see in legal services. I'm, I, I, I am seeing changes in that space with folks wanting to collaborate with community, but I think it's different to say I you know, attended a meeting in which there were community members and attorneys versus saying, okay, did I really do anything to, you know, shift the power here in terms of who's making decisions, in terms of who's getting the resources, um, you know, in terms of, um, you know, uh, where our work is going in the future. And so kind of thinking more intentionally about how we're collaborating, who we're collaborating with. Uh, next is kind of this piece around uh, how to find, you know, we're taught how to find a model plaintiff and not how to really sustain these important collaborations with you know organizers and so again that's something that especially in the intake process and how we think about case development what cases we're taking on uh you know it's something that's that we need to think beyond just finding the the model point for, for a case um lodge in general but also in the nonprofit you know space is tends to be very rigid um they're stuck in precedent by design. So it's not, you know, a lot of the, the ways in which we approach law now, again, although it's starting to shift, if you look deck, you know, you know, for the past several decades, not tons, not ton, not a ton has changed. You know, there's still, and I'm going to talk about that in the next couple of slides, there's still certain theories of change and practices, uh, you know, that, that organizations tend to focus on. And, you know, we're not always willing to say, hey, we want to try something new, something that may be, feel a little bit like it's outside of our comfort zone um, because of, of being stuck in this kind of precedent by design. And then lastly, um, you know, we're trained in this tactical litigation, but not in how it takes, you know, a multitude of strategies uh, to produce sustainable, you know, ch social change that we're not going to be, uh, you know, fighting against, you know, years from now. So we're not going to be able to just simply sue our way out of, you know, all these issues. I'm going to pause there just to see if there's any, you know, current questions or anything like that that has, that has come up. Um, Latoya or Toby or? Yeah, there's just one comment, um, actually two comments in the chat. It's from Caroline Robinson. It says, collaborating with community is completely different from being led and directed by our communities. And we need to remember and emphasize the, quote, serve part of services. Great, no, thank you. Uh, really good points and thank you for sharing. And I'll, I'll just repeat, um, if, in case I didn't say it in the beginning, that if there are you know, questions or comments, feel free to you know, chime in as we go. I'll, I'll try to 
incorporate a few, you know, pauses, being that this is a lot of information. I don't, I don't want to be just kind of lecturing about it. Um, so thank you for, uh, you know, for those comments. Uh, I'll move on just to what I mentioned before that I was going to jump into, which is common, you know, legal theories of change. Um, I'm going to walk through some of these, you know, I'm going to walk through them, but I want to just point out that this is not to say that we should not be thinking about access to justice law reform, rule of law. It's just saying that we don't want to be thinking about it in such a siloed way, uh, you know, because there are certain, as you'll see, certain assumptions that are built into some of these theories of change that could be, you know, actually harmful or work against what we're trying to do. And so we need to think about it a little bit differently. Um, so these are common legal theories of change that our organizations implement. Um, and you'll kind of, you know, maybe as we walk through the, some of these, you'll think about your own organization and where it fits into some of this. What are the legal theories of change that, that each of your organizations, you know, bring to the table? And what are some of the good things about it, but what are some of the things that may need to, to be changed? Uh, so one common legal theory of change is this access to justice. You know, the, the main idea here is that uh, the lack of lawyers or the access to the courts is what creates bad, bad, out, bad outcomes for, you know, marginalized people. And the assumption that's kind of built into this theory of change is that if only as a lawyer, we could get this matter before a judge, that, you know, we would uh, reach some sort of justice, you know, or equity. And, and I think hopefully for some of you, you know, you know that that's not the case. Oftentimes, the very courts have been the ones that have, you know, um, uh, you know, either caused issues or really cemented, you know, uh, issues that, that come up and problems that come up for, you know, marginalized communities. And so, you know, we can't just strictly think about just access to the courts, access to judges, access to lawyers. Uh, that's not going to be, you know, enough, although it's, it's something important to incorporate, you know. And so typically these are, you know, think of like models like public defenders and civil, civil legal services. You know, that's often, you know, one of our main goals is access to justice. Like I said, we just want to at least be thinking of where the gaps are with all these theories of change. Um, you know, another one is law reform. The, the thesis here is that legal victories lead to social change, you know, and so as the law changes, society changes. And hopefully, you know, we can think about here some cases in which that's definitely not the case. Oftentimes, the law is lagging behind societal changes. Movements are asking for one thing, and then attorneys are asking for a different thing, you know, and so it's not always you know, and, and often the changes that we're trying to make in the legal spheres, because we're trying to reverse a legal policy that was put in place in the first place, you know, and so, uh, although, again, law is an important tool, we should be using it, we should at least be thinking that it's not always going to be law that's leading to societal change. You know, it's kind of like the chicken or the egg, you know, type of dynamic is, is sometimes law will facilitate social change. But also there's going to be other times in which law is standing in the way of, of social change as well. Uh, so we think of impact litigation policy reform as being some of those types of you know, organizations. Um, the rule of law you know, is another common legal theory of change. So the theory here is that by strengthening laws, strengthening our legal institutions, that's going to lead to more equity. Uh, this is similar you know, kind of to what I mentioned earlier. Uh, the assumption here is that a strong judicial system you know, is equated to, to, to justice. 
Um, again, it could play a very important role in that, uh, you know, but at the same time, it's not going to, you know, especially if there's, you know, corruption and bad practices within the legal system, it's not, like I said, sometimes it's going to actually cause more disparities. Sometimes it's going to patch up one issue, but open up another. And so we at least want to be thinking about that. Um, democratizing law is another one. I think we were actually just having a discussion about this in in the lunch session, you know, about um, the theory here is, you know, if we give folks more access to legal tools and knowledge that will lead to change, you know, and again, it's important to be doing that education piece and making sure that we're doing civics, civics education in our schools and all that. But we want to at least know the limitations here. You know, the assumption here is that, you know, one everyday people are able to just understand and leverage law more just as possible. You know, we think of like court navigator type programs and, you know, legal help type programs. Again, an important tool, um, but just, you know, you know, one thing I'll mention here, I'm sure maybe others have other thoughts or opinions, but, you know, we don't also want to turn this into placing all the onus on oppressed communities to have to be doing the work in order to you know, kind of reverse, you know, the, the challenges that they're facing. Access to, I mean, even in the project that I'm doing through, you know, the Immigrant Detention Conditions Project, this is a part of the project. All of these are part of, you know, the project. Um, you know, building know your rights materials, you know, building pro se guides for folks, because at the end of the day, you know, that is going to be helping individuals, you know. But again, if we're thinking more in terms of social movements, uh, that's not going to be enough, you know. And lastly, uh, social rest, this kind of social rescue legal theory, which is kind of that, you know, law and social services is what leads to change. We as the lawyers are kind of the heroes in this picture. And that, you know, if only we could provide these range of services, uh, you know, we're going to be able to fix people and fix their situations, you know. And so, again, it's it's not that simple, especially because look how many decades of resources and time that attorneys have already put into this, social service providers. Um, but ultimately, like I said, we're, we often end up dealing with more symptoms than, than root causes. And so that's all to say that, you know, in, in addition to kind of thinking about all of these and how we incorporate them in an organization, we, we also have to be thinking about the, the larger movements here. And so, you know, just kind of compare what you know, I just mentioned with, you know, movement lawyering, a movement lawyering theory of change. This is just an example of one. And, I, and I'll, I'll read it just to emphasize it. Is that systemic and transformative social change happens when impacted people take collective action, lead their own struggle, and build power to change the root causes, you know, of oppression. Um, you know, Basically, therefore, the role of us as legal advocates, as legal services, is to make space for, bolster, protect, and build power of organized people, you know, not just for us to, to win cases. Um, so, you know, that's at least something that I hope, you know, folks are able to walk away with, um, you know, today. So I'm going to take another quick pause here to see if there's any other comments or questions afterwards. Just uh, one additional comment. Uh, Liz had to leave uh, the meeting. She had another call that she had to get on. But what she okay. said was, I'd always wanted to say that I had always wanted to participate in RJ uh, as a staff attorney, but did not have the opportunity. It was one of the things I was committed to engaging in once I became director of the organization. 
Shrava used to be called CLAE, and they had a leadership institute that may have been the predecessor to RJI, which I did not participate and deeply appreciated. I did participate, rather, sorry, and, and deeply appreciated. I highly recommend RJI from a director's perspective as well, but wish I had actually participated as part of the team rather than a sponsor and supporter with Mario and Latoya, which I did not do. Being more engaged as a director would likely have helped absorb the scope of the project more easily and quickly to get the work off the ground. Happy to connect with any other directors who are interested in investing in the Institute or have questions. And she gave uh, her email address, which I think most people know. Yeah, no. If you don't, it's lmatos at plsma.org. Great, thank you so much, Toby, for sharing that. Um, and yeah, I'll just kind of um, add in that um, Liz is the director of PLS. And so when you could apply in numerous ways, I think our year when we applied to RJI was the first year they were uh, kind of also trying to have a managerial track as part of RJI. Uh, you know, unfortunately with the pandemic and everything that happened, a little bit of that got thrown off, but I, you know, I think that's something that they're more intentionally, uh, you know, Shriver incorporating into the RJI program. Now, uh, I know through, you know, MLRI, uh, you know, our director there is participating with other staff members. And so absolutely, if, if, you know, if folks are interested in, in, especially if you're in a, you know, managerial role, director role, uh, to reach out, because I think there's uh, a lot of things that we're still learning that, you know, could have been done better um, and things that we're trying to incorporate into the work we're doing now. So definitely, you know, reach out to them or reach out to us if you have questions. Um, so I'll move on to kind of the next spot here and let me see, we've got some time still. So the next is kind of diving a little bit into our equity project um, since, um, you know, a lot of this is being done in partnership with, you know, Latoya and, and other staff members. I can't go into kind of the super fine detail because we're all kind of playing our own, you know, individual roles within that process. But I, I do want to at least talk about kind of the evolution of a project when we first, uh, you know, wanted to propose it and apply to RJI, you know, how that's, um, you know, evolved, you know, since then, and kind of what are some of the different components of the, at least from a bird's eye view, the different components of the project. Um, and then we'll, you know, close off by talking about some of the challenges and, and suggestions for folks wanting to do this moving forward. So the evolution of our project, um, Again, invite Latoya if you have thoughts and you know, include them in the chat or chime in. But basically, uh, like I said, there was already work being done prior to me arriving at PLS of applying to RJI and, and brainstorming about that. Once I kind of came into the picture and, and, and kind of joined in with that, you know, our idea was thinking about, for example, the, uh, a community liaison piece of the project in which, you know, uh, you know, Latoya had already presented that as an initiative that that we we should take on at PLS. And basically, what that means is, how do we work more closely with community and make it kind of a two way process? Not only that we're you know only reaching out to them when we need something from them. You know, we need a testimony. We need uh, you know uh, we need an example for the media of what's happening. You know, and that's all part of different tactics that we can use, but you know, how do we make it more two-way where the community is also feeling empowered, the community is also having you know, a say in, in uh, you know, what direction we're taking in the organization, how are we keeping our ears on the ground beyond just you know, 
just surveys or beyond. I think often in legal services, what happens is that because we tend to advocate for, you know, community members who are, uh, you know, being harmed and we're in, in communication with them in that way, right? That we're, for example, there are clients. And so we, we learn about their cases. Uh, we, you know, learn about some of the issues they face and, and we kind of take that and say, well, you know, based on the information I'm hearing, based on the, the, the harm that I'm seeing, uh, these are the changes I want to implement, which is, which is a little bit different than saying, how can I work hand in hand with community so that they're feeling empowered, they're getting resources, they're having a direct say in, in the choices I or my organization is making. And so, you know, I think a lot of, you know, initially the project was thinking through that. How do we, how do, we do that? Um, I'll kind of skip over, you know, some of the, the initial changes in our application, but, uh, but what ultimately ended up happening was that, um, you know, be, moving beyond just this kind of community piece of the project, you know, we, like many of you and many others who have participated in RGI, realize that, you know, tackling race equity issues is so complicated. There's so many layers to it. Um, you know, how can we do our external work, our advocacy work in a way that doesn't cause harm if we're not also doing the internal work as an organization, individuals, uh, you know, to make sure we're learning about these issues and how to best deal with them, you know, and so and how, and it's not, and just doing the individual work, you know, as a person or as an organization isn't enough either. You know, you ultimately have to put that into the practice, into practice with the work you're doing externally, the, the advocacy work. And so, you know, I think we, we struggled and continue to struggle with what's the balance there. You know, how do we both start implementing, you know, or continue implementing change, you know, externally in a way that's equitable? And how do we do that while we're also, um, making sure we're increasing our capacity, you know, as individuals in the organization and changing our internal processes, uh, you know, to, to align with that as well. And so basically what ended up happening is we decided, you know, let's take a look at both these areas, both the internal and the external components and see how we can just start, you know, chipping away at some of those changes that we want to make. And so, um, you know, I guess I'll start with, with some of the, the internal pieces that, again, from a bird's eye view that we're, we're thinking about, uh, we've begun to implement some of those, some of them, others we're thinking about, others we're struggling through. And so, you know, I just want to kind of lay that out here as, as an opportunity to learn and, and share ideas. Um, one is, I think, what a lot of organizations are doing right now is trying to think about training internally, you know, uh, beyond just, you know, the traditional implicit bias type trainings, beyond just a one day seminar is how do we constantly incorporate the same way that we're constantly, uh, you know, sharing trainings for, you know, newer attorneys about how to, you know, do depositions about how to litigate to how to, you know, uh, uh, navigate the court system, you know, the same way that we're going through law school, also learning all these things. How do we consistently incorporate that into our daily practice, you know, in civil legal aid? everywhere from the onboarding process when a new staff member comes in to folks who have been around for decades doing this work, you know, and how do we incorporate that as part of our, you know, daily practice. So training, ongoing trainings around race equity, uh, you know, making sure we're bringing in the right people to do that, making sure that they have a good understanding of the specific issues, uh, you know, that our organizations are dealing with um, because although a lot of them overlap, there's also, 
you know, uh, ones that are unique to each organization as well. So that's piece of that's part of the internal work that we've been doing right now. You know, we've been talking to various kind of, um, you know, organizations that we're considering, you know, working with to enter into a very, you know, months and years long process of of making changes, you know, internally in our organizations. Uh, and it's and it's taken a while. We've, you know, met with several organizations um, trying to kind of vet them for, you know, what's the fit between the work they're doing and the and the work we have to do internally in our organization. And, you know, that takes time. Um, and so we're, we're kind of still walking through that and, you know, and, and taking steps to get there. Uh, another piece is ongoing opportunities for, you know, exploration. Um, so that can mean different things to different organizations. Um, you know, it can mean uh, exploring, um, you know, I think earlier in the earlier session, uh, some folks were discussing like, book clubs and starting those type of things you know that's an opportunity for ongoing discussion and learning um you know there's kind of di committees in organizations i think there might be even a session um that's going on you know right now about that um so you know how do we implement that you know organizations that may be thinking about how to implement affinity group you know work into their into their you know uh the changes they want to make in an organization and and so those are all things that, you know, are worth exploring on the internal side. Um, also, and then finally, internally, the other one I'll talk about is changing uh, policies and practices. And I think this is where there's still tons of, you know, work to still be, still be done and, and an area which is extremely important to have the buy-in of, you know, leadership and management. And these are things like our hiring practices, you know, what's the leadership structures, who who are the people in the organization making the decisions, you know, in the ultimate decisions in the organizations? Are they the ones who are most closely, you know, connected to, um, you know, the, the clients and communities we're working with? Uh, are they, uh, you know, is, is a decision-making power shared? You know, is the community driving any of that? So thinking about that, thinking about how we carry our intake, what are the cases in which we take, which are the cases that we decide not to take either because those type of claims are too difficult to take on, they're not popular. Um, you know, it's it's a, uh, for example, I see this a lot with, um, you know, unfortunately maybe not in, in PLS since we work with folks who have, you know, uh, you know, uh, criminal convictions or charges or things of that nature. But I see that often in other spaces where a lot of groups decide to not work with folks who have, who have some sort of inter intersection or interaction with the criminal, you know, legal system. Uh, so thinking about that, um, thinking about case development, thinking about pay scale within organizations, uh, about onboarding, about, you know, is our mission statement aligned with the work we're trying to do, uh, and thinking about HR practices. Uh, again, I think there are some later sessions that talk about some of these things, so I won't go into uh, much of that. And then externally, um, thinking about, you know, you know, we started also, uh, and Latoya has been driving a lot of this work of, you know, uh, surveying our uh, BIPOC community, you know, uh, Black, Indigenous, people of color community who are incarcerated because, uh, you know, a lot of the work we have to do has to be tailored to the specific experiences that they're facing, the discrimination they're facing and other harms. And so getting a better idea right now, we're, we're in that process of getting a better idea of what are the specific issues they're facing uh, I know I'm also doing that in the you know immigration context that I'm working in. 
Uh, also trying to make sure that our legislative agenda and also at the state level is focused very much on race equity. Obviously, there's been a larger movement around that as well. So that's starting to happen in, in some small ways, at least. And then the one I'll just highlight, because I think it's an area where I've been trying to spend a lot of time, is kind of this community uh, interaction, community liaison type of work. Um, and so I know in you know the immigration space that I'm working in, um, you know, it's been something that's been extremely tough, but something I've been trying to incorporate since the early days of the project, which is connecting with folks who are directly impacted, whether that's folks who are in detention, folks who were previously detained, or their family members, and hearing from them what it is they want to see, uh, you know, and, and really strategizing with them, like I said, more so than just uh, because they were you know, a client, I happen to have a conversation with them. It's really inviting them into a space and say, hey, and, and right now, for example, we're a group of us, a mix of attorneys, organizers, and community members are meeting on a weekly basis, you know, on, um, to talk about these things. You know, what, are, what is advocacy that community wants to see around what's happening? You know, for example, recently in, in Bristol County, the end of the contract in Plymouth now uh, around ICE detention. And so, we're meeting, you know, with a small group of us, we've started, you know, the idea was just to start connecting early on, you know, um, but we just got to the point, you know, in the past few months where we're now having week to week meetings to, to have some of these, you know, uh, nuanced discussions. And so that's something that I've been focusing on a lot as well. So I'll pause there in case Latoya or in case any others have questions or want to add in, you know, comments. So let me just take a pause. No comments from me. All right. Yeah, nothing new in the chat. Okay, thank you. And so the last two pieces that we'll talk about here um, briefly, and Toby, remind me, this is going till, is it 2.45? Yes, that's correct. Okay, thank you. Um, so the last two pieces are challenges um, and, and then suggestions for others who are thinking about, you know, doing this work. And so... Uh, you know, I'll speak from uh, our experience, my experience, our experiences, experiences that we've heard through other RJI participants and other advocates in this space. Uh, and so these are challenges that tend to come up a lot. And, and especially, uh, you know, most of our organizations that we're here representing today are historically white-led organizations. And so these are challenges that we, I think, all have to face um, and, and, and have been facing. So... Let me speak to at least a few of them, although there's, there's others as well. So challenges that, you know, anyone, but definitely, you know, primarily, you know, people of color have faced in historically white organizations. And, you know, you could say this in other spaces as well. You know, I think about myself constantly in areas in which I still have to do a lot of, you know, learning, whether it's around, you know, LGBT rights or whether it's around, you know, uh, you know, disability rights or things like that, where I feel like I have tons of learning to do. And so these are challenges that I, I face myself, but I see also, uh, you know, in the context of race equity work happening in our organizations. You know, one of them is resistance to change. Um, this is a huge one, you know, as, as you all know, I don't know the actual, you know, uh, kind of metaphor here, but you've all heard about kind of how hard it is to turn a, a ship, you know, as opposed to like a, a small boat. And, and this is one of those areas where with like legal services, there's been one or, you know, one way of doing things for so long. Um, 
and there have been folks who have been in the space for decades, that it's it's hard to remove yourself from doing or practicing law in that type of way. And so there's a lot of resistance to change. There's a lot, you know, and a lot of that is tied to the traditional views and approaches that we, we learn in law school, you know, that we learn as attorneys, that we invest resources into, that we've spent, you know, people who have been doing this for decades have been investing time, energy, and resources into for, for a long time. And so to, to come in, you know, especially I, I see this a lot as a newer attorney in this space, coming in and saying, hey, there's different ways of approaching this can, uh, you know, rub people the wrong way. And so I think that's a challenge that, you know, that I see often. Uh, also, different, there's different levels of urgency and, and speaking up in silence that, you know, I've definitely, you know, noticed in, in a lot of these spaces. Um, so often, for example, we are most loud when it comes to issues that uh, our community, whatever that community is we identify with, is facing, you know, and we don't feel the same sense of urgency when it comes to communities that we don't relate to in that close of a way, either because we just haven't directly faced those experiences or because we don't interact enough and form deep relationships with those communities. And so there's different levels of urgency in, in our organizations. There are folks who are very much spending, like I said, their after hours thinking about these issues and figuring thinking about how to incorporate these changes into their organizations and others who, you know, it's are kind of caught up into the day-to-day, -day, uh, you know, uh, way of, of approaching the law. And, and so, you know, it's kind of like, well, I'll get to it when I have a little bit more time, you know, and, and that time usually never comes because we're so busy. And so, you know, that's a frustration that I see often is how do we make sure that folks are feeling that sense of urgency, even if they are not closely identifying with those communities. And so that's something I think we could all do. And same with silence. Uh, there's been so many meetings that I've been in that, you know, there's different levels of folks speaking out. You know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, folks who want to be allies in this space, but remain silent, you know, in spaces that are extremely important. So, you know, this is, an area in which I challenge if you find yourself being silent in those spaces, whether it's because you just haven't, you know, you don't feel, you feel like you're gonna say the wrong thing or you just haven't done the enough learning in that space is that that's, you know, that should be a sign that, okay, I need to go do the learning so that next time we're speaking about this, I have something to say. I could speak up in this space. I could, you know, uh, uh, not, not let the, the full burden of that feel, fall on, you know, uh, a marginalized communities. And so, that's another challenge. Um, also, there's related to that is just people are on different learning curves as well. And so, again, if you're just starting your journey about learning about these issues, make sure you're you're connecting with with folks that you know that could help guide that. But also, make sure you're taking on uh, a lot of that yourself as well. You know, don't put the burden just on on BIPOC communities to do that work for you. Um, and like I said, a lot of that has fallen on, especially for, for, I know there's plenty of you that are probably, you know, tuning to this webinar or to others that, that, you know, feel that burden as staff of color, you know, that you've had to either, either because someone assigns you to do this work or because you just feel the urgency to do it, that you've taken on a lot of these burdens. And so you've taken that on without any additional conversation, uh, without any, you know, uh, additional, uh, you know, uh, community to, to kind of help guide you through that process. And so that can be tough, especially when 
when you may feel you know alone in, in some of these legal spaces. And then finally, another challenge that I've seen is just kind of this nonprofit industrial model, which comes with a lot of its own challenges within that, you know, thinking about how we, you know, finance our work, you know, what our donors asking for and making us feel pressured to do, whereas community might be asking for something different. Um, you know, what's, uh, you know, when we're fighting for constrained resources and constrained media attention, you know, our organizational egos get in the way often, you know, because we're fighting for finances and resources and media that, you know, sometimes we have to be okay with saying, hey, although there's a reporter reaching out to me and I want to get our organization's name on this, you know what, maybe I'm not the right one this time. Maybe I need to reach out to a community organization, a community member, or another partner who's, you know, more equipped to speak on this or, you know, who we need to be working with collaboratively on. So, you know, I think thinking about those organizational egos as well is important. And, and then also just thinking about the decision-making structures, you know, like I've mentioned a few times now. So I'll kind of go to the last section so that we have a couple of minutes at least at the end. And the last piece is just kind of suggestions for folks who are, um, whether it's for, you know, people of color, whether it's for white allies that are wanting to do this type of work or participate in RGI or similar initiatives. Um, one extremely important thing, uh, especially if, you know, for those directors out there and, and funders out there listening is that you need to have dedicated time and resources to do this. Um, you know, you have to look for new sources of money. You have to sometimes shift priorities. You know, sometimes you, if you look at your budget or look at where, you know, how a staff time is being spent on a day-to-day -day basis, that may mean having to shift some of that in order to be able to dedicate more time towards engaging in, you know, race equity learning and, and work. Um, and so that's, you know, extremely important. Important also, you know, aligning job responsibilities with movement building, you know, when you're putting, when you're looking to hire folks, you know, is that part of what you're, you're asking for is for folks to not, not just bring in those litigation skills, not just bring in, you know, the client's, uh, you know, legal services skills, um, but not just bringing the writing skills, not just bringing the oral advocacy skills, but bringing in some of those movement building skills as well and incorporating that into, you know, our organizations. Um, another suggestion is, uh, well, I guess, just comment is that it's, it's an ongoing long-term planning. And so there are things you need to be thinking about in the immediate, you know, uh, in the immediate future and some in the, in the long-term future, you know, in the immediate, it's connecting with, you know, resources like RJI and others that you'll interact with throughout this, you know, um, these three days. Uh, and in the long-term, it's how do you change your organizations and how do you change, you know, the, the work you do. Uh, collaborating with colleagues, community, directly impacted individuals. Um, one thing I'll say here is just, you know, it could be frustrating in the beginning when you're doing some of this work because you feel like it's only one, two or three of you that have the urgency, capacity, energy to do it, but it's important to make sure you're finding, you know, key allies to do the work with so that, you know, you're not being burned out and you're not the one taking on, you know, all of that. And so, you know, that's, uh, again, I'm gonna, it's a suggestion for both people of color and white allies, but I'm gonna, uh, you know, highlight here specifically for allies, you know, keep that in mind, you know, by you not participating, what, you know, some of that is being, some of that weight is being shifted to somebody, you know, in your organization, and who is that? 
Um, and then lastly, you know, buy-in from leadership and colleagues is extremely important. So if you're going to be thinking of applying to RJI programs like Git, have those conversations, you know, beforehand uh, and see, you know, uh, what are some of the, the obstacles you might be facing once you are, you know, in the, in the, in the initiative or project. And so I'll leave it there um, just because I know we have just a couple, 15 minutes or so. Well, we do have one additional comment, which I will read out to everybody if you don't have the opportunity to pull up the chat. It says, another challenge for both POC attorneys and institution when institution is working on racial equity is to make sure the POC voice is heard. A whole lot of white people trying to undo institutional racism without consulting the people who are experiencing the racism is also an empty exercise. Thank you. And so maybe as we uh, wait for a few questions to come in. I'm going to uh, briefly play the RGI video so folks have, you know, uh, a good grasp of what it is. And if you're interested in, in following up with, you know, Shriver on that. And in the meantime, I hope, you know, you're all thinking of any questions or comments that you want to, uh, you know, add to this conversation. So let me just uh, get out of here and play this. Do you remember how to do it? Yeah. Just give me the thumbs up if the audio works. I can see your screen. The Racial Justice Institute is a collective of attorneys from across the nation. What makes us unique is that we take more of a legal approach, understanding that that legal approach can only be successful if it's done with the community. You do take this huge problem, which is like racism, which, you know, how do you really begin to combat that? And really like sit down with a piece of paper, <laughs> with a problem in the middle, with all of these different arrows. And it's like, all right, I'm gonna look at these like four dynamics and think about like, who are the actors in these systems? Like, what's your local tipping point? Like, who are gonna be your partners? and making sure that we are uplifting people of color. For me, being part of the Racial Justice Institute, you know, it's a very hopeful space. You know, a lot of people are in this moment where they're really questioning, like, what are the right strategies? Because there are so many of us now who've graduated from different cohorts across the entire country and different practice areas, we're able to connect with each other and communicate about the work that we're doing. And so we can find more opportunities for intersectional work. He has given me a set of tools that have just sharpened my race equity work, but really my work as a legal services attorney. And so for me, even though it's an incredibly challenging place, the more challenging thing you know, for me is when you're doing just one individual case after the other. Being a community lawyer means learning when to listen. So you really have to suspend that lawyer hero ideal. It is so important to acknowledge your own implicit bias when you are doing this work. I have peers that I look up to and contact on a regular basis. I have people to call if I have challenges. So there's no better time to engage in race equity work or race justice work than today because people are paying attention. It can be very easy to get stressed out and bogged down by the work that you're doing. It feels like there are crises happening every single day. And sometimes you wonder, what difference does my work in one case matter when everyone else is still gonna be suffering and everyone else is still gonna be affected by these really racist policies. So by being able to look at it through a bigger picture lens, I'm able to see the value of my work. The work is really hard. Um, it's, it's hard to see inequities and the effect that they have on people and, and really disenfranchised and marginalized groups. And so so it is, it's really difficult to do it every day and to still keep like 
having passion about it and still being able to give to your clients. And so talking to people who get it and who support you is, is really meaningful. So we're creating a space where when we feel the most hopeless, we can come together, just be with each other and encourage one another and continue that shared understanding that we do have the tools to fight this and we will. We are the movement. We are strong together. We are unapologetic about addressing race. We're the movement. We are the movement. We are the movement. All right, I'll stop, I'll stop sharing my screen now. That way, um, you know, if folks have questions or comments or anything, uh, feel free to either unmute yourself or uh, you know drop it in the in the chat at these last few minutes. Yes, I think everybody has the ability to unmute themselves. So if you have a question, by all means. Uh, we have another comment. Um, what strategies can be employed when not everyone is a supportive ally within the space you're trying to achieve slash implement race equity, race justice? There is an assumption that legal aid consists primarily of people who are quote unquote liberal and progressive. Great, thank you. Um, good question. And like I said, I'm definitely not an expert in any of this. Hopefully collectively we're experts, but I'm gonna give my like my viewpoint on this, which is um, yeah, I think this has been extremely tough. You know, it's and I can see how it's tough for others as well, uh, when not everyone is kind of a supportive ally. And that, that's why I think the point I had made towards the end, which is like sometimes, you know, you just need a few critical allies in a space to just start shifting the energy and the culture in a space as well. You know, you don't necessarily need the buy-in of 80%, 90% of, of the individuals. You know, I think I forget, you know, what rough percentage they might have mentioned, like in the RJI in RJI or how many individuals they said, you know, there's no magic number, but, you know, I think if you could get a, a nice core group to kind of start that process um, and that's, that's made up not only of, you know, uh, black indigenous and people of color, but also of white allies in that space is extremely important. And, and I think a lot of, you know, before I entered law, one of the spaces that I like spent a lot of time learning about was, you know, kind of community organizing. And I never really considered myself much of, of a community organizer because I wasn't, uh, at least compared to some of the folks I know, very much on the ground doing the door knocking, doing the campaigning, the talking to folks one on one. But I was doing a lot of learning in that space and 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 connecting with folks who were doing it. And you know, one of the things that's part of that is having one on one conversations with folks. You know. And I think that's important is when you, you know, you may not yet know who are the exact like allies, you know, in your particular organizations or offices. Uh, maybe you'll start getting feelings of that as you have these discussions around race equity. Uh, so I urge you, you know, if you feel like there's only one or two of you, try to, um, you know, one of the activities, that's part of one, one of the activities in RJI actually is, you know, trying to identify, you know, where your organization stands, where do folks within your organization stand? You know, are, there's going to be some who are very much kind of the obstructors in a space and others 
who are very much open, but they just yet don't know how to engage, you know, others who are fully immersed. And so trying to do the work to identify where do you as an individual stand within that, you know, where do others potentially stand where you can reach out to them as allies to at least begin that process. So I think is, and at least that's part of uh, what I think is a way to, to, to address that. And, and then just to address the last point there, that there's an assumption that legal aid is people who are liberal and progressive. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I agree with that, you know, uh, point and frustration sometimes that, um, you know, I think I, I mentioned this in, in the uh, conference that we had a few months ago, um, you know, through MCLE, where I think I mentioned something along the lines of Massachusetts feeling like it's like the land of the well-intentioned. You know, there's so many well-intentioned advocates out there wanting to do great work. But again, if you're not really doing the work to uh, unlearn some of the things that we've learned and, and uh, you know, apply, uh, you know, kind of these critical race theory frameworks and race equity intentionally into our work, then you're just going to be, uh, you know, uh, continuing the cycle of harm in some ways in the community. And so, you know, thinking of yourself as just being, um, you know, progressive, I'm open to change, you know, is, is not enough. Unfortunately, so if others have thoughts as well or different opinions, feel free to you know, chime in as well. And so, any other questions? It could be about you know the RJI process, how it was applying or going through that, or it could be about kind of some of these larger issues as well. And I'll also maybe as folks are thinking, also invite some who, if you have participated in RJI or currently, uh, if, if there's anything you wanna kind of add that you've learned or are learning uh, you know, through that process, feel free to also uh, you know, jump in. Oh, it seems to be quiet. Um, well, while we're waiting, we've got a few minutes left. Um, I just wanted to thank you on behalf of MLAC for uh, a very long and insightful hour or so, hour and a half or so of uh, discussion. Much appreciated. I'd also like to thank everybody who attended. You know, we had a, a little bit over 100 people at one point during this, so that was uh, obviously well attended. Thank you. And of course, I'm gonna also, I don't think I included this in the slides, but I'll drop my, you know, PLS email in case folks just wanna reach out more privately as well with any questions. But otherwise, please don't be shy right now. We got a couple of minutes. One of your co-workers noted, I'm very pleased to be part of the cohort from MLR, MLR, try that again, MLRI this year. It's been a wonderful eye-opening experience so far. 
Thank you, Brian. And if there's anything else you want to add, please feel free to unmike yourself. Um, you know, unmute yourself, I mean, to, to share, because I'm sure, uh, you know, especially since you're going through it, uh, you know, right now, it'd be insightful for folks to, to know. Hey, Mario, can you hear me? Yep. So I just wanted to say hello to everybody. Um, uh, I'm part of the cohort with uh, my colleagues at MLRI, um, uh, Georgia, our executive director, Iris Colmano Gaines, and uh, Virginia Benzin. Um, and uh, we are three months, three or four months into our, I think it's a six or seven month uh, project. Um, it's been, uh, like I said, eye-opening, uh, great to connect with people, albeit virtually this year. Um, and we're working on a project to address uh, digital divide issues here in uh, Massachusetts, particularly as it relates to communities of color. Um, we haven't finished the work yet. Um, and, and in some ways it's just beginning, but if anybody wants to uh, uh, reach out to me, um, bereichard at mlri.org. Um, I can tell you already, it's been a very valuable experience to the four of us, and hopefully we'll pass on what we learned to our organization as well. Thank you. Thanks so much, Brian. Really appreciate it. And thank you, Mario, for your wonderful presentation today. Another one of your coworkers, uh, thank you for such an insightful conversation and an MLRI intern got it right that time. <laughs> it's been really inspiring to see your work. Well, it's great to have, you know, interns participating in all these spaces. As I mentioned before, even like the, the onboarding process, that's an area where I think we could do a lot more work also, you know, um, to make people feel welcome and also to make sure that they, uh, uh, you know, they're kind of plugging into some of this work early on. Thank you. Okay, well, if there's, oh, thank you, great discussion. You can see all the chats, but I think um, we can give everybody that, that uh, glorified extra three minutes back in their day. <laughs> uh, once yep, again, thank you all for attending. Mario, great, thanks a lot. Great, thank you. <laughs>